Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Welcome to another classic kits 1954 to 92 Patreon special where guests are invited on to discuss their favourite strips from that era when the shorts were short. My latest classic kits guest is journalist, author and podcaster Ian McIntosh. Ian, like me, is one of those guys who's been podcasting forever and I've been following his work for over a decade. Co-founder of Muddy Knees Media in the summer of 2017 in a move every bit as stunning as David Caruso's departure from NYPD Blue back in 94, for me anyway. Ian, Ben, Green, a.k.a. producer Ben and James Richardson all left Football Weekly to launch the hugely successful Totally Football show. In 2020, Muddy Knees became part of The Athletic, and these days Ian fronts the Football Manager show for them. Here's Ian McIntosh. Right, Ian, I'll start by asking you what I ask other guests when they nominate their classic kits What's your criteria for a classic kit? Uh, it's the memories that come with it. Um, because let's be honest, you know, they're, they're football shirts. Most of them are absolutely awful. Not all of them, it must be said. Um, but, uh, but you know, they don't have a, a proud record in the sartorial charts. So it's the memories that come with them. It's what it evokes when you see them, even years and years and years onwards. That was the, the, the main thing for, for my reasoning here. Have these old strips obtained classic status in part because 30, 40 years ago they were worn for longer than a season? Though, though I think by the time we move into the mid-80s, which is where your selection comes from, that was starting to change. The kits were coming out every couple of seasons. Yeah, to the extent that I think, was it Brentford this week who said that they'd yeah. had a good old drink and they were going to keep the same kit? It was like, yeah. That never happens. That's Which is a- nice as well, because it's a traditional striped kit, and striped kits are almost dead, certainly in English football. Well, and you more than anyone will know the old thing about striped kits, that no one's won the league in a striped kit since, oh, I want to say 1934, but I'm kind of reaching there. Um, so we're, whenever new owners come in, I think they're like, you yeah, know, we can't win anything in stripes. Or in blue, if you're the new owner of Cardiff City, of course. Yes, yes. Or, or, or the gag, still on top of it. Although unusually, the last decade has been dominated by clubs in blue, hasn't it, in the, uh, the modern-day well, Premier League? 
money they brought with them. What's your childhood experience of replica kits, and did you have any? Well, so my first ever replica kit was the Liverpool 86-87 shirt. I know people will wonder why I have that, being I'm from Essex, but you have to remember in 1986, there was at best one football match on TV a week, and it was almost always Liverpool. And the very first game I watched was the 86 Cup final, Liverpool-Everton. And that's the first football match I ever watched. And then Liverpool were on the telly. And so it was that my first shirt was the 86-87 Crown Paints Liverpool shirt. And uh, indeed, I was basically a Liverpool supporter, albeit that kind of Liverpool supporter who, if presented with a map of the United Kingdom, would be unable to make it. <laughs> So your first choice is that Liverpool kit, which they unveiled in 85. It's their first strip with Adidas. And I remember being at school when the change was announced just before the Heisel final, which is the first game it was worn in. And the rumour for some reason was that they were going to switch back to their pre-Shankly white shorts. I don't know why that rumour spread, but it was uh, pretty nailed on that this was going to be the new kit. The yellow liver bird synonymous with Paisley's great teams had made way for the reintroduction of the white liver bird. The Adidas bars on this replica kit of yours, they were quite subtle. Where did you stand on the trefoil versus the three bars? Which, I mean, the three bars have been around far longer than the trefoil, but the trefoil for me is just one of the most iconic sports logos I've ever seen. I mean, I, I just, if we're talking about the, uh, yeah, the, the, the sort of rounded Adidas um, logo, yeah, I mean, it's it's just beautiful, isn't it? It's uh, it always, for some reason, it just gave off sort of flying saucer vibes, like landing yes. flying saucer vibes that I always quite liked. And yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in on that. But the three stripes on this kit are what works for, for me. And I think it would have been 10 years later that train spotting came out. And you've got the iconic picture of Renton in a, I think, I want to say it's like a yellow Adidas shirt with the blue stripes. But it's a very, very similar sort of vibe to this kit. And so suddenly it was it was all it was all fashionable again. And I'm speaking from personal experience, those sort of Adidas shirts were all I ever wanted to wear. Um, so it's got that it's got that timeless thing in it. It's got that it was actually there was a Liverpool shirt very, very similar to this, but the crown and the paints were on the same horizontal line. Yeah, I was um, trying to find that this morning. I, I couldn't find it, but I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I definitely remember that. And, that, and they've obviously they've, they've swapped it round now. So it forms more of a more of a compact shape. So clearly a graphic designer has got involved finally somewhere down the line. And when you got close on this shirt, um, because I mean, this is the first football shirt I ever had. I studied this more than um, I studied for my A-levels. And you've got the, these very, very thin, uh, almost invisible pinstripes. And on, on one line, you've got that beautiful Adidas logo. And on the other, you've got the liver bird running up and down through it. So I, this wasn't just a sort of symbol of, you know, the only football team that was ever televised in the 80s. This was kind of, oh, my God, this shirt works on so many levels. There was also, there was a yellow trim on the V-neck collar, red and white trim, three stripes on the shorts and socks. Um, as you say, Crown Paints was the sponsor. The kit was, as I say, it made its first appearance in the tragic Heisel final against Juventus without the sponsor's logo. Joe Fagan made way for Dalgleish after that final. And an astonishing move for a big club in any era to go for a young player manager, albeit in Liverpool's case, it's greatest ever 
player. It received a lot of press coverage at the time, but understandably overshadowed by what had happened at Heisel. Player managers were fairly common back then. These days, the manager's job has become so huge. It's unlikely we'll ever see something like that again, surely. Yeah, I mean, the the only scenario in which you could see it happening would be in something like what we've got right now, the COVID crisis, where you all of a sudden lose 10 or 11 players. And there was, I think there was a moment with Liverpool in 91-92 where they had to re-register Sammy Lee as a player. I think he was probably only about 39 or 40 at the time, but he was re-registered and sent off to the reserves to get his fitness back. Um, So possibly only in a scenario like that. I the manager's job itself is too much for one person now, which is why you've got technical directors and directors of football. The idea that they could actually be a professional footballer at the highest possible level while carrying out such a stressful job, it's um, yeah, unlikely to ever be seen again. But it's, it's incredible. I didn't realise until I read his book, uh, Howard Kendall was player manager um, yeah. as well, just at Blackburn and then very briefly at Everton. It means that we would get visuals such as I think the 86 final where the player manager is actually coming out with a team wearing shorts and you don't see too much of that nowadays. I've always thought it's very strange when you get managers who wear shorts on the on the dugout. But in fairness, Dagleish had a perfect excuse, uh, given he had named himself on the subs bench. And, th- and this, was the, um, this was the very end of his playing career. He was starting to phase out by this stage, but you get any younger listeners... Um, with this, they'll just sort of have an idea of him as this grim-faced Scotsman, but uh, just such an incredible player who could make space that didn't exist pretty much by sticking his ass out at a right angle and then just taking a turn. He's such an intelligent footballer. There, there was an interview with uh, David Priest, who was on Totally Football Show many, many times, wonderful man. And uh, Daglish had come, I think, to Sunderland, uh, just in a sort of vague consultancy, helping out on the training ground kind of way. And, and David was saying that he was getting the strikers and he was showing how you could tell where the defender was. Um, and he repeated the trick over and over again. I could tell where you are without even turning around. I could tell where you are. And it was only at the end he went, look at the shadow. Look at where the sun is. I can tell where you are. All I have to do is look at the shadow. I don't even have to turn my head. And it was just like those little those little edges that he could bring to his game just to open up the angle for the pass, just get that little bit of room. His pace had completely gone by this point, but it didn't It didn't matter at all. He was still incredible. English football has been spoilt, certainly in the last 20 years, with some of the outstanding foreign players that have come to play the game. But we're almost embarrassed or reluctant to say, hang on, people like Kenny Dalgleish, people like Brian Robson, people like Graham Souness, they were as great as the foreign players that have graced our game over the last 20 years. I mean, Kenny Dalgleish was just an extraordinary talent. Yeah, he was He was sensational. Brian Robson doesn't get anywhere near the credit he deserves. He was, he, he was two midfielders wrapped into one. He was everything. You don't often get that combination of you know, bottomless stamina and incredible technique and incredible composure. He was incredible. And, you know, one of, one of the other kits, one of the, 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 I'm going to talk about the memory is of Brian Robson trying to pop his shoulder back in while he's wearing it. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting uh, with you about Brian Robson. <laughs> you wonder what he would have been worth back in the day. And also he, he used to do it, I think, sometimes on uh, up to 33 bottles of Budweiser, if I remember <laughs> a 442 interview correctly. So this first Liverpool side of yours, this was the first Dalgleish side before the radical reboot uh, in response to Everton's threat and domination of the game in the mid-80s. And that reboot involved bringing in 
John Barnes, Peter Beardsley, John Aldridge to replace that goal machine, Ian Rush. And this this move is about a year away when you're sitting there watching your first cup final. This Liverpool side, the early Dalglish side, you get many non-older Liverpool fans remarking from time to time that like all pre-87 Liverpool sides, they'd go away from home. They'd be boring to watch. It'd be Hanson to Lawrence and to Hanson to Grobbler and playing the kind of football that you could not get away with now in this era of live television football. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the stories of the, the training um, at, at Liverpool are, are legendary, that they'd just go in and play five-a-sides. Um, and people will quite rightly point out that it was often a little cuter than that, that the five-a-side game they would be playing the, the teams would be picked to mirror what they were up against that weekend, or they might have the five-a-side team pushing further out to encourage certain patterns of play. But yeah, it's it's a very different Liverpool team. It's a Liverpool team that's missing Graham Sooners. Of course, uh, Phil Thompson, uh, I think, has, has gone by then. Uh, Alan Kennedy is uh, is dumped as left-back. Um, so it's a team in transition, which which makes what Daglish did in 85-86 uh, all, all the more extraordinary to be only the third team that century to win the double, only the fifth team ever. And they didn't even start that well. They had a very mixed start. There's another thing that people forget is that it was Ron Atkinson's Manchester United, who I think won their first 10 games. And, and that was that was supposed to be it. Title droughts over. Liverpool are in transition. And by the end of it, of course, United have fallen away. West Ham, it turns out, the surprise package. Uh, and Liverpool just about pip Everton to it, and then beat them in the cup um, for good measure. It's it's a funny one. They're they're one of the most successful Liverpool club sides, uh, not counting European competitions. But they weren't a patch on the teams that the, or the team that was be, to be developed two three years later. How Everton didn't win the double that year themselves is, for me, it's 35 years on or whatever it is. It's still incredible because they were arguably the, the stronger side. Yeah. I mean, this was an Everton side that had turned over Bayern Munich in Europe um, yeah. the season before and was expecting to be playing in the European Cup. It was a team that uh, Howard Kendall had just, astonishingly, you know, he, he had seven big transfers when he first took over. And only one of them, Neville Southall, worked out. But he was granted the time and the extra funds. And, and that Everton team, again, it's another one that, that often gets overlooked. Players like Kevin Sheedy, Peter Reid, just outstanding footballers. So it was, yeah, it was a, a good time for football on the Northwest. Your next choice is the England Umbro 84 to 86 home strip, the first of their renewed association with Umbro after the Admiral years. It was first won against France in a 2-0 defeat in the Parc de France as England fell to the majesty of Platini and Co. It saw the reintroduction of the navy blue shorts after the lighter blue of the Admiral era. Did you prefer this return to more traditional England colours? Well, I mean, I would say looking back from from here, the 82 shirt is is incredible. It's timeless. Um, And it was pilloried at the time. Everyone hated it. That was a little bit before my time, but there was everything in this shirt is so bold, like the big, thick V-neck collar that's taking no prisoners. None of this rounded nonsense with a little popper that you get in 1990. I know everyone's going to say 1990 is a classic shirt, but for this was a chunky collar and a big fat badge and dark shorts, apart from against Argentina when it's very, very sky blue shorts. Yeah. And it's it's my first World Cup. It's uh, probably about three or four weeks after that Liverpool-Everton Cup final. 
and I've got the bug and I'm fighting with my parents because I'm eight years old. So for some reason, they won't let me stay up until midnight to watch England, Portugal. And that was probably a good decision in retrospect. Um, so I'm, I'm grasping for snatches of, of football on the news to find out what's going on or reading teletext. Oh, yeah, it, Page 302. Football, 302 for your headlines, 312 for your seven-page news <laughs> brief, and that's where the money was. That's That was my favourite bit. I'll let that scroll by, have a cup of tea in the morning. But, yeah, it's it's extraordinary. These were in the days when FIFA, when they put a World Cup in a region, um, they played at that region's time zones. Now, of course, if you've got European teams playing out of their time zone, they'll, they'll move heaven and earth to make them kick off at 11 in the morning local time just so they don't lose TV money. The first two games of this tournament were late night. In fact, I think the first three, I think Poland was was quite Yeah, that late. was a late night. Yeah, I, I didn't watch that one. Late for an eight-year-old anyway. <laughs> um, but by now it's like, whoa, it's all happening. So my memory of this is just sitting in my pyjamas for England-Paraguay um, and then, of course, England against Argentina um, and just completely falling in love with the game. I mean, I watched... Every, what were they, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. kickoffs, the early ones? I watched yeah. every single one. Uh, and it got to the point my parents just gave up trying to send me to bed. They just, they'd, they'd let me sit down and watch. And every now and then you get extra time, which is like bonus time, not having to go to bed. So that was where I was properly in, properly fell in love with the game. And of course, where, you know, try and explain to an eight year old why the entire world knows that the, uh, the Argentine number 10 cheated but they're not going to change the result. It's just one of those things. I've never felt so embittered in all my life. This kit for the time is quite a traditional kit because football strips were starting to get a bit busier at this time, but you've gone for a really traditional look, a nice clean look. It had, as you say, the the a big chunky V-neck. I think it's got some red and white trim in it. Navy blue cuffs again featuring the red and white trim. A navy blue umbro double diamond on the right. The three lions on on the chest and uh, the umbro double diamonds incorporated uh, into the socks. The earlier England side under Bobby Robson had failed to qualify for Euro '84. It had been a troubled start to his reign. And I recall as a kid going to a number of their Wembley games, '83, '84, very unpleasant atmosphere, particularly the Soviet Union. I remember. And now we we live in a time where Bobby Robson is rightly venerated, but at the time, I still to this day haven't seen a manager cop that level of abuse from both fans and media. It was an extraordinary transformation by 1990. Yeah, I tell you, if you, and if you're listening to this podcast, you'll love this book. Uh, Daniel Story's book on Bobby Robson with England is, even for those of us who sort of remember the tail end of it, it's mind-blowing, the level of abuse that he gets in the build-up to this tournament. It's the nastiness of it. It's the, you know, the, the thing about him coming down the tunnel and he's got to take his overcoat off because it's covered in spit. It's It's really, really grim. And he's... You know, he's working at a difficult time in English football, particularly towards the end. You know, you don't get the chance to see what these guys are like uh, against the best in uh, in Europe because they're not in Europe. Tactically, the game hasn't really developed very much. It's all pretty kind of pragmatic and get it up in the air because the pitches are terrible. Um, he's got some of some brilliant players, but as we've alluded to, Brian Robson is stricken with injury problems. Doesn't discover Gary Lineker until quite late. Mark Haightley was supposed to be the man. He had a really decent strike rate. Yeah, who obviously, you know, there, there was a lot of respect for um, because he was out in AC Milan doing doing particularly well. So 
it, it was a really strange time and it looked like the World Cup was going horribly, horribly wrong uh, all over again. And then it turns around, he finds that chemistry between Peter Beardsley and, and Gary Lineker. Um, and there it is. You've, you've got suddenly a team that looks like it could actually win the World Cup. And now we come to Brian Robson. I associate this kit uh, with Brian Robson more than anybody. Always referred to around that time as the country's most complete player. And, I, you know, in recent years, every time England have gone to a World Cup, there's always an injury issue. But I would argue that I think the 86, leading into 86 and all the interest and worry over his shoulder dwarfs anything that we might remember <laughs> with Beckham and Rooney yeah. in, in recent years. I mean, Robson, it's, it's the country didn't believe anything was possible without Brian Robson. He, he was that good. It's good to see this documentary out now because... I'll ask you this. When talk turns to Manchester United's numerous great midfielders of the Ferguson era, these days I rarely see Robson mentioned. It's almost a generational thing. It's, yeah. it's a difficult one. It's, it's a funny one because his reputation has obviously been tarnished by uh, his managerial career. But his managerial career wasn't even that bad. You know, he got, he got yeah. Middlesbrough up and, and kept them up for a period of Possibly a little bit unlucky to go down with the uh, with the point deduction that sent them down on on the final day. And and anyway, it shouldn't matter. Nobby Styles wasn't a particularly good manager, and you know his reputation came through. Bobby Charlton wasn't a good manager. His reputation came through. Brian Robson as a player, honestly, God knows what he'd fetch in the transfer market. Uh, anyone who was excited about you know Paul Pogba joining Manchester United or Naby Keita joining Liverpool where both moves were seen as like this is the final piece of the puzzle Robson was better than both Roy Keane was the the standout player of of the 90s um for Manchester United and, and he was absolutely incredible but it's hard to overstate I think Robson in comparison to all of the other players around him in England at the time the golf was so great he was genuinely world class the tragedy for Robson was that by the time United had a side deserving of his talents, he was he was too old. He was phased out. Yeah. It was sad to see, you know, suddenly that a man who's been captain of United for over a decade has to lift the trophy up with the vice captain, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was still getting in the team every now and then. But I mean Mike Phelan was getting in the team every now and then on the basis that you only had two subs, so you just you wanted to know whoever you put on could play multiple positions and do a decent job. And um, yeah, Robson's time was very limited. It was it was good that he got to do that. And I thought that was um, uh, that, that was a great thing for Manchester United to do to make sure that he was one of the people lifting it up. Lastly, on that England kit, you alluded to it earlier, Robson's shoulder injury. Now, I've always had a fantasy about injuries, just the, the level of attention that you get with a dramatic injury. Lineker's bandaged hand at the Mexico 86 was brilliant. Reminds me of Cantona 94 FA Cup final. <laughs> it, there's, you know, it's a, it's a good look. But if I could have had a dramatic injury, I think it would have been Robson's shoulder injury. That playing in a montage, Lacrimose music and Robson looking distraught. It really, it, even now I can still watch that. Yeah, it's that perfect combination of the fact that even if you never experienced it, you would still rank it as one of the most painful things to happen just because you've heard so much about it, like losing your shoulder like that. And then there's the kind of the inevitability of it because it's happened so many times, you know it's going to happen again. And obviously it's going to happen right before the World Cup as well. Uh, but Gary Lineker's one, that just reminded me that at school, on at least one occasion before going out at lunch to play, I'd wrap toilet roll around my <laughs> 
to uh, to to look just like Gary Lineker. And you know, it should have been two all. John Barnes came on, I think, for the last ten minutes against Argentina, put in one cross that got us back to two one, and then he put in another cross, and it's it's like Gaza ten years later at Wembley. I can watch it as many times as as you like, and I still can never figure out how Lineker hasn't reached it. England against Argentina with Brian Robson. 2 1. Does that, does that still happen? Um, yeah, because Matt Maradona was so good. I don't think Brian Robson would have had any more luck at stopping him getting through. Wouldn't have done anything about the handball. Maybe would have got back into it. But that, that Argentina team, it was, it, it, it was, it was Maradona leading them through. It was their time. There was a sort of feeling of destiny about it. And, and it's good that we, we have that memory of, one of the greatest players of all time being immortalized in that era because without that with what happened afterwards with his terrible injury before you know he might be it might just be old boys like me and you reminiscing about how good he was and no one would know anything thank you for downloading when shorts were short you might be interested in supporting the show's patreon page Supporters will get each new episode a fortnight early, as well as bonus episodes exclusive to patrons. Show your support for the podcast at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short. Your support for the podcast is appreciated. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Your last choice, Ian, this is an interesting one, South End's 1990-91 promotion. Is this, this was their second successive promotion. And, and just before I ask you a little about that era, was this your, this is your local team, is it? Sort of. I'm from Chelmsford in Essex. And uh, I have been to see a couple of Chelmsford City games in what was then the Beza Homes Premier League. But they weren't in the in the pull-out match facts in Match Magazine. I wanted to go to a league game. And my dad was a policeman. And uh, for him, as he once memorably put it, football in the 80s was trying to stop one gang of skinhead Nazis from stabbing another group of skinhead Nazis. He was a West Ham fan when he was young, but he was like, I'm not taking you to West Ham. That's not happening. You live in Chelmsford. The two nearest teams are Southend and Colchester. Pick one. It's not really a right option to that. But I went with Southend because I thought, well, if the football's bad, then we're at the seaside. You know, you've got the arcade machines and donuts and stuff. So I stand by my choice. David um, Webb was the manager at that time, but this was his second spell at the club, wasn't it? The second spell was a four-year spell. That was the successful spell. Yeah, and it wasn't even his last spell as well. He he kept coming back. It, it was a <laughs> Southend is an extraordinary club. If if ever anyone falls into uh, piles of money and they want to buy a football club, I bet Southend is always on the list because it's the southeast of England. It's an incredible catchment area. Um, it's it's a unique fixer-upper opportunity, except that it never goes well. Whoever comes in, it goes wrong. We had Bobby Moore as manager in the in the eighties, and it it brought no discernible improvement whatsoever. The the whole place is completely cursed. But I went there um, for Southend against Huddersfield. Southend were riding high in the third division at the time. Huddersfield were not, and it was my first proper league football match and I walked in and it was just you know you know how stadiums were it's like this dilapidated old building with 
corrugated iron roof and everything smells of piss and onions and you pile into the darkness of the what with the north stand was where south end fans went and you piled in there and the people urinating up against the back wall and torrents of it kind of flooding down but you've never seen anything like it just the 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 pitch is so green and it's it and the mud is so brown and this shirt was so bright. Everything was so much more real than it had ever been on TV. And everywhere around me, grown-ups are swearing their heads off at a level that even I, at my age, and, you know, if you're you're a young, young person growing up in Essex, you learn how to swear really, really well. And these guys were Olympic standard of swearing. I remember my dad leaning over and going, doesn't matter that you hear it. What matters is you never repeat it anywhere near your mother. And uh, Southend lost 1-0, <laughs> which was a perfect introduction into that unrelenting smoking clown car of a football club uh, that, that I call mine. But yeah, that was the shirt they were wearing. For some reason, I remember Southend in the 80s would often play their games, their home games on a Friday night. Jimmy Greaves' son, Danny, I think briefly played for them. I don't know why they played on Friday nights, but I, they were a Friday night club along with Tranmere. It, it was basically to avoid clashing with the London clubs because right. Southend had that Tranmere Rovers thing where West Ham fans who had shifted out to Essex would often go and watch them on the Friday. Also, there was a big market in the car park on a number of Saturdays, so we couldn't get in the way of that. Before we come to the actual kit design, which is just a unique design, even the combination <laughs> of colours is just really strange, but it, it somehow works. This is from 89 to 91, Southend under David Webb, the two successive promotions they've gone up to the second division in 1990 David Webb has changed the squad about a bit a player one of the most high profile players who wasn't a first division player at the time I think most guys our age will remember him Brett Angel arrives from Stockport County can you tell us a little about Brett Angel and 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 the team that won promotion to the second division that that season before we come to the strip itself yeah, so it was great. It was the kind of thing that, um, that that you would say would never be repeated, except that it was repeated by one of the players, Steve Tilson, who ended up doing it between two thousand and six and uh, two thousand and five and two thousand and seven. But it was it was a proper team of just blokes, and for some reason, it all just clicked. You had my favourite player of all time and one of the finest men I've ever met in my life, Chris Powell at left back. Uh, he was incredible. I think you obviously Brett Angel. This you, you, you meet people sometimes, and they are much bigger than they appear. I think he was six foot two, but he looked like he was six foot eight. He was just an absolute giant, indomitable in the air, and brilliantly wore glasses off the pitch as well. I was like a footballer who has to wear glasses. Um, so you had him, Steve Tilson, the the consummate club man. And just somehow David Webb binding it all together, almost certainly with uh, a lot of old-fashioned attributes like uh, good social life and, and things like that. They were, yeah, they, they were the, the first team that I ever, I ever actually watched with my own eyes. And, and after that, the, the Liverpool thing just, just faded away. Um, it was not long after that that I thought, I'm not from Liverpool. I don't have family from Liverpool. I've never been to Liverpool. I'm probably not going to go in the foreseeable future. I think I might actually be a Southend fan. I think that that's the the, the interesting thing that um, I think I am one of the very few people who has been an inverse glory supporter and deliberately moving away from one of the most storied clubs in world football into what I would have to say right now is pound for pound one of the worst football teams that's ever existed in any nation. 
David Webb gets them up in 91. And there's, a, I think, a very brief spell in early 92 when they're actually top in the second division. This is the season when the Premier League has been formed. But then David Webb resigns in the, in the spring. What, what, what do we know about that? Um, yes, yeah, so it's an hour and a half. Um, Southend beat Kevin Keegan's Newcastle 4-0 on New Year's Day in an early kickoff. And for an hour and a half, Southend, uh, you know, halfway to the Premier League. And then it all falls away um, in the second half of the season. Um, there are all sorts of internal rows. If you ask anyone in Southend and they're not being recorded, they might uh, offer up theories of, of why this happened. Um, among many of the things that they might say was that they felt there was a fear within the club that the prospect of um, the greater scrutiny on certain areas okay. of, uh, of the administration might cause problems. I don't know if any of that's true in all seriousness. Um, it might just have been a very, very small club that just ran out of steam or, or felt the pressure a bit too much. But by some distance, that was the high watermark. There were some entertaining moments to come afterwards. Ronnie Whelan came over which was two worlds colliding. And there was, of course, a brief period where with Southend in the top six in the second division and Liverpool in the bottom six in the top division, uh, there, there was a plausible scenario in which they'd swap places. And uh, it was all right under Ronnie Whelan, but largely because he could score a free kick from pretty much anywhere on the pitch. And I think that might have art artificially inflated things a little. That Newcastle win, I, I think it might have been just before Keegan arrived. I think that might have been our deal. Oh, but but was that the high point in South End's time in the second division? Was that was that that yeah. side at at its peak? Um, some enterprising shrimper actually managed to get the the teletext score onto a onto a mug and uh, and was selling it on eBay. You know, you're, you're at a point in football history where Cambridge very nearly got to the Premier League. Yeah, um, Cambridge led by Dion Dublin. Um, you're at a point where Swindon do get to the Premier League playing glorious football, albeit with a kind of you know, enhanced version of the Ronnie Whelan thing through uh, the acquisition of Glenn Hoddle. So it's it's a wonderful time. for. for I, I still think that the, the early to mid-90s is the best that football has been, certainly in my lifetime, because you have a little bit of the stardust of some famous players in there, some some international players. But mostly it's just blokes and anyone can beat anyone and anyone could get relegated and anyone could get promoted. And it's it's definitely not like that anymore. Lastly, before I wrap up, the, the kit itself, this is so unusual, this kit. It's a blue shirt. It's a lighter blue. Is it, what would you, is it brush strokes on it? Darker blue brush well, strokes? How do you describe this kit? So it looks like... At some schools, there were walls that if you threw water over them, it was almost like painting them. And and often, you know, being schoolboys, you'd spit on the wall um, to, to kind of paint it. So it's a sort of light blue background. And then it looks like someone's kicked a wet football against it again and again and again. So you've got these kind of great big ugly smudge marks on it. It's I, I like the, the blue and the yellow. I still think that Southend's problem started when they dropped the yellow from their kit and went back to blue and white. But the thing I love about it is that the shirt sponsor is High Tech, uh, a, yes. a, a timelessly unfashionable trainer brand um, from Shoebrunest just down the road. And it's just, again, I'm going to sound like such an old man right now, but the idea of the local team supported by the local business with a whole load of just really good blokes in the team doing well against all the odds, it's uh yeah, that doesn't happen much either anymore. It's a kind of 
it's, it's like almost like a tribute shirt to the early 90s in its style. <laughs> it's not good enough to be considered something of its own of its own sort. But then, you know, you only have to accelerate a few years and you get what is generally known as the custard splat shirt, a moment when Southend did try to do something very, very different and essentially had a, um, a rich, deep blue and it looked like a canary had hit it at about Mach 3 and exploded <laughs> everywhere. So may- maybe this was the right level. So the, the high-tech sponsor, uh, the high-tech brand name, that was in white. The distinctive vector logo just below it, I think, was was in red. The yellow shorts, the yellow shorts were introduced around 85, I think, and it's such an unusual combination, but you're saying that the yellow worked. I think it worked, and obviously I'm going to say that because um, that's that's what I was introduced to. That's the way it was when I started watching Southend. Therefore, um, that's the way it always should be. But it does. Blue and yellow really works well together. Everyone. And this is with blue. This is with blue socks as well. But it's a unique kit. There's no other team in the, yeah. among the 92 that had a strip like that. You know, without wanting to go on one, when you're a small club, you've got nothing. Like they take everything away from you. You'll you'll remember that attendance uh, revenue used to get shared. Gate receipts would get shared 50-50. Well, the big clubs they came and took that. Um, TV money would be shared across the 92. Well, the Premier League came along and they took that. You still had the chance of bringing up youth players and selling them off for a load of money. But no, P came along, took that as well. The only things you've got, your dignity and your identity. And um, I've always felt that Southend over the last 10 years have just squandered both of them with a um, a rash of stupid short-term decisions and and just not really respecting their own legacy. It's... It's weird because I'm a Southend United fan and it's very, very rare that Southend United fans are invited on shows like yours to kind of defend their honour. But I'm not going to defend their honour. They deserve everything they get and I really don't like them very much. <laughs> I do. I, do. I always will. But you know what I mean. Thank you for your time, Ian. Tell us where listeners can find all your work, your books and where they can find you on social media. So you will find my books in landfills up and down the country. They've sold literally tens of copies and are still available there. Um, if you like Football Manager, come and listen to the Football Manager show. And if you really like it and you really like excellent journalism, get yourself a subscription to The Athletic. Can I drop a promo code? You can. I can, I can drop a promo code. Because you've stayed all the way to the end of this show, if you type in theathletic.com forward slash fmpod, theathletic.com forward slash fmpod, there'll be some kind of special offer. I won't say what it is because when you listen to this, it might have changed, but you get a year's subscription for a much better price. And where can people find you on social media? Are you, are you, are you active on oh, your Twitter? Oh, I don't want to do that. God, enough people have found me on social media already. It never goes well. If you're there and you're going to be nice, uh, it's Ian underscore games, and that's Ian with two eyes. Thank you all for listening. There'll be another classic hits, 1954 to 92 out shortly. Quite a few of these have been recorded now and they'll be part of a steady flow of Patreon exclusive content. Do please share and retweet the show. Tell your friends they can sign up for a season ticket at patreon.com forward slash shorts with short for early access and exclusive content. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at shorts with short and facebook.com forward slash shorts were short. Look out for tweets, Facebook posts, 
relating to a new thing I'm going to be launching in relation to this show. I'm going to be launching a forum on Discord. It will allow listeners to join the When Shorts Were Short group on Discord and you'll be allowed to discuss the latest episodes on there, discuss the guests and some of the stuff that they've talked about. And I'm hopeful that uh, there'll be some enthusiasm for it. And uh, hopefully I can grow the community that uh, appears to enjoy this show. If you want to join the group page, meanwhile, on Facebook, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me shorts with short at 1607westegg.com. All my work is at danielruiztyson.com. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. And if the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm.